today we are looking at the second half of the French Revolution and I will pick up right where we left off last time with almost no recap. So make sure you have those note-taking sheets ready and let's begin. The French Revolution Part 2 when last we left our heroes, we had gotten as far as the storming of the Bastille. And at that point, I wrap things up by reminding everyone that uh, there's basically three parts to the political fallout uh, at this point in the story. The economy is in terrible shape. Uh, there is a widespread loss of co confidence in the government, not necessarily in the king, though that does come with time. And the estates demand that Louis fire his cabinet and form a new constitution. That's where we stopped. So uh, there is, at this point still, it is not a bloodbath. It's rowdy, it's loud. But at this point, it still looked like it could have gone the way of the American War for Independence. Even with the storming of the Bastille um, and people trying to appropriate weapons from the weapons cache there, um, that is not unlike some of the events that we see in colonial American history during the early days of the conflict over here. Um, but the difference here, I should point out, is that with the colonists in America um, appropriating the weapons uh, was seen as a natural act against an invading force because the Redcoats were coming as an invading force, even though they were technically from our own homeland. Um, but in the case of the French, these were people within the city who were looking for those weapons and were looking to use them not against an invading force, but against the established authority there in their city and in their nation. <clears throat> so it had more of a looting, plunder, and pillage vibe to it than, say, the uh, the scramble for arm armaments for self-defense that we were seeing with the colonists. Because uh, remember, you've got the Quartering Act. You've got um, a, a lot of other things in place in colonial America that were not the case with the French. So all of this is going down. We get to August 4th, 1789. At this point, there is abolition across the board of feudal rights. And this was aimed directly at the nobility and the clergy. Um, one of the things to pay attention to here is the systematic attack on the church all the way through this story. And it doesn't happen overnight. It happens in stages, but it is very deliberate. And there's a very specific timeline you can plot just with those events. Um, I've mentioned several times, and, and I will probably mention it several more times uh, throughout this discussion and the rest of the school year, uh, about the two summers I spent in France. The first summer I spent, the uh, family that I lived with, uh, stayed with during that time, were English-speaking French Protestants. They, they were French, 
French was their native language, but both parents were English teachers. So um, I had a freedom to ask them certain things uh, without any kind of language barrier, which was really interesting, um, it, especially when it came to certain points about uh, France and World War II and the Nazis, which I will get to later on in the year. But um, I found it interesting that in a largely Catholic country, you know, France has historically always been predominantly Catholic, um, that they would choose to be Presbyterian. And so I kept it top level. I, I didn't ask too many pesky questions because I, I was still sort of feeling out the um, appropriateness of getting too personal with the questions with someone that I'd only known for about a week. Um, but I, I did ask a few questions. And one of the things that they told me that I was really shocked by, especially considering the number of cathedrals, just gorgeous cathedrals uh, throughout France, is their, the, the statistic at the time that they had access to was that less than one half of 1% of all French citizens considered themselves religious. And then you break it down into whether or not they considered themselves a devout Christian or a devout Jew or a devout Muslim, then the numbers splinter even smaller. So this is in like 1999 that I'm in France and they're telling me back then that virtually nobody in France considered themselves to be persons of faith. The French Revolution had a lot to do with that because with the systematic attack on the church and the way that enlightenment ideals were deliberately reinvented into the culture, it essentially eviscerated faith from the French consciousness. So even now, um, if, if the airlines uh, opened back up where we could do a lot of uh, free traveling across international borders and you could go to France, um, you could tour some amazing cathedrals. Uh, even Notre Dame in its devastated state right now is still awe-inspiring. It's uh, Going through those front doors is like walking through the front gates of heaven. I, I'm very serious about it. it. It is impossible to wrap your minds around the enormity and the grandeur and the legacy of these cathedrals until you are setting foot inside one of them yourself. And yet, at the same time, the overwhelming majority of people who attend Mass on Sundays, it, it's nominal. It's it's not something that they take seriously. I mean, we, we confess our sins to, you know, to the priest on Sunday so that the rest of the week we can do, you know, whatever, you know, feels right, what have you. So, um, so just keep that in mind as these little bits and pieces about the church and about how the church was attacked um, come into play here, because that in itself has long-lasting uh, impact on the French people and the French nation and how they do life at multiple levels. On August 26, 1789, the Declaration of the Rights of Man is declared. Now, this was a framework for the proposed new constitution. 
and it was deliberately patterned after the English Bill of Rights, which was originally penned in 1689, and the American Bill of Rights, which at this point is only, um, you know, a year or so old. Like, it's not that old. This is something that's like hot off the presses. They're hearing about this Bill of Rights that has been tacked onto this new constitution that the Americans have just put into place. And this Declaration of the Rights of Man, it's patterned after these two seminal events, these these founding documents, and it also sweeps away the idea the idea of the divine right of kings. Remember, this is the idea that a king rules by God's appointment and answers directly only to him. Um, For those of you who are returning students, uh, refer to your previous notes about Shamey Jamie and um, and all of that mess following the death of Elizabeth I. Um, This declaration declared rights of life, liberty, property, freedom of expression, and guaranteed the rights of accused persons. So again, a lot of parallels here between the American stand for freedom and independence and what we're seeing at this point with the French. Um, But this is the point where things really start to splinter off and the the two efforts go in very different directions. For one thing, we have the Jacobins. Uh, That's your next section of notes there. Uh, This is a political group formed in 1789. And you'll notice that there's a lot happening in 1789 here. Um, It's a very busy year. And the Jacobins were and still are considered the most radical and ruthless of the political groups formed during this time. They recruited from among the bourgeoisie, which is the common people, and with Robespierre as their leader, they fomented unrest among the countryside and instituted the terror of 1793 to 94. Now, that phrase there, fomenting unrest among the countryside, is interesting because up until this point, the overwhelming majority of the unrest and the mob action was happening in Paris. Um, it, it was Paris was and still is the seat of government in France. Um, that's where one of the two uh, main palaces of the king uh, was located. It, it was it was where everything was happening, but at this point, the Jacobins start to create a network of how to create unrest in other parts of the country. Sound familiar? It should. If you're living in 2020 in the thick of things right now, that should sound very familiar. And we can discuss at another time about false news, real news, Antifa, um, what they are, what they aren't, what they say, what, uh, you know, we can get into a whole other discussion there. But the fact remains is that we have seen a parallel here in our own time where uh, unrest happens in major city centers, starting in Minneapolis because of the, the whole scenario with George Floyd. And then it's like it ripples out 
to other parts of the nation. Uh, so the week that after George Floyd died, there were protests breaking out all across America. Peaceful protests are your constitutional right. Um, so there is nothing wrong with people peaceably coming together and protesting what they perceive as an injustice or imbalance in the system. Um, but one of the things that the police had to be very careful of was to allow the protesters to have their constitutional right, but also to be look, looking out for people who would try to infiltrate these groups and um, get things riled up from the inside and try to turn these peaceful protests into something more volatile and violent like we see in or saw in some of our uh, larger cities. Um, you know, uh, people showing up in Nashville and just burning the courthouse to the ground. That is not a peaceful protest. That's mob action. Um, so a week after George Floyd died, um, there were some protests that were scheduled to happen in Carrollton. And it, it's rather interesting the way things happened here in Carrollton, because um, for one thing, it never turned vo volatile or violent. Um, I, I have some friends who were actually on the square uh, over the three-ish days that the protest took place here. And, um, and they said that on the first evening, there was a car, uh, two cars actually, one with a Kentucky license plate, one with an Ohio license plate, who pulled into the square. And these people tried to infiltrate the protest, but the protesters, the ones who were there protesting peacefully within their constitutional rights, chased away those newcomers because they saw that they were there to do mischief. So that's rather interesting development that never made anybody's news. I don't think it even made the local news, let alone national. Uh, no reason for it to make national news that wasn't nearly violent enough. Uh, the following day, I was driving through the square when the protests were continuing. And it was interesting because I saw a police force, but they were all on the perimeter looking outward. Uh, there was this sense that they were there to protect the protesters as they protested peacefully. And, and there was shouting and chanting. There were signs. Uh, there were people with megaphones. But again, it was a peaceful protest. And um, what I found out later, and maybe you did too, is that the protesters who gathered in Carrollton that week actually went down to the county courthouse and they formally applied for permission to use the AMP to block off a, a, a block of the square, that square that runs in front, uh, sorry, the section that runs in front of La Trattoria. And they got permission to do these things. They had a set time. And then when they arrived, there were like water stations, you know, it was blistering hot this summer. Um, and people delivered water and masks so that people could safely protest and stay hydrated. hydrated. Um, I mean, it was a very different picture from what we saw on the news throughout all that time. So 
again, a, there's a very big difference between people trying to make a principled protest against injustice versus a flash mob taking matters into their own hands. And the Jacobins were at the heart of this in France in 1789. They became the network that started spreading this unrest into the countryside throughout the whole of France. If you ever read Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, which up until this year has always been on the required reading list, um, if I had known in March what was going to happen in May, I would have definitely have kept this book on the reading list. Um, but if you read through this book, then you will find that there are two main characters, a husband and wife called the Defarges, Madame and Monsieur Defarge, and they are part of the Jacobin movement. And there are several scenes that revolve around um, passwords at the tavern door and secret signals and people slipping off to hidden corners to have a quiet word and, uh, and just this constant networking as they hear about things going on in Paris and they are trying to mobilize people in the countryside to hit the government where it hurts. So this is a, a big running sort of subplot throughout the, uh, the entire book. So the Jacobins, these were basically uh, Robespierre's henchmen, his silent or invisible army, if you like. And it was through their efforts, coupled with the leadership of Robespierre, that we get the reign of terror uh, during 1793 and 1794. But still in 1789, on October 5th and 6th, we have the Wives' March, sometimes called the Women's March. And uh, this is the moment where Louis XVI and his family are forcibly removed from the Palace of Versailles, which is in the countryside. Remember, the Louvre is in Paris. Versailles is out in the country. Uh, they forcibly remove the royal family and take them back to Paris. And the rioters are singing and dancing the whole way. There, there's sort of this um, circus festival kind of atmosphere to this. And the, what the mob had intended to do was to seize the king and do him harm, possibly lynch him on the spot. But the Marquis de Lafayette intervened and he managed to defuse the situation. And instead of doing violence against the royal family, and especially the king, um, managed to get the mob to back down enough where they reduced that intended violence to a compromise that relocated the family to Paris. Uh, then things go into sort of a partial stalemate, um, a just ongoing unrest um, until 1790, May 19th, the National Assembly, remember that's the third estate meeting in the tennis court, the National Assembly abolishes the nobility. They make it illegal to be of noble descent. Now let that sink in. This is more than just saying, oh, we're going to do away with these offices or these titles. This is like looking at the, the Windsor family the ruling family of England right now and saying it's illegal to be a Windsor. It's illegal to be descended from Queen Victoria, in which case they're all 
criminals against the government based on their DNA. That is a very dangerous line of thought. Anytime you get to a point where you start outlawing certain groups or subgroups of people, especially if it's based on their heritage or their ethnicity, then you are treading dangerous waters indeed. So they abolish the nobility. In November, uh, November 27, 1790, the clergy is instructed to swear allegiance to France. Uh, think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and what got them thrown into the fiery furnace. This is not just saying, I will be a good law-abiding citizen. This is swear to your, your allegiance to the government over your personal faith convictions. Again, very different ideology here, very dangerous territory. And again, this is another step in that persecution of the church. Um, on April 25th, 1792, we see the first use of the guillotine. Um, and I know I'm skipping around here. There's obviously a lot going on uh, during this time. I've basically have just sort of leapfrogged over about three years here. Um, and, and, and there's a lot of, you know, infighting, backbiting, um, plotting, conspiring. Robespierre is having this like meteoric rise in power. Um, but in the interest of time, I, I'm just I'm, I'm just hitting the highlights as we go through here, but it's in you know early 1792 that the guillotine is first used as a public execution uh, method. Um, fun fact: the last time that France publicly executed someone by guillotine was in 1977. Just food for thought. In August. 1792, Louis XVI and his family were uh, officially imprisoned. So they were removed from Versailles in October of 1789, and they were basically under house arrest at the palace in uh, palace in Paris. But in August of 1792, they were removed from the palace, and they are imprisoned. And a month later. The New Republic abolishes the monarchy and strips Louis, Louis of his titles and honors, demoting him to Citizen Louis Capet. And um, I, I don't officially put it in the notes here, but this um, piece refers to it that during this time in the early days of the New Republic, there was this habit of of reinventing the culture to the point where instead of having, you know, nobility and common folk and the clergy, there was this idea that everyone needed to be made equal in the eyes of the government and the eyes of the culture. And so you were supposed to address one another as citizen or citizeness if you were female. So I would be citizeness Angela, and, um, you know, my dad would be Citizen Carl. And that is how you were supposed to address one another as a way of 
reminding yourself and them that everyone was equal now in the eyes of the law and that no one could lord it over somebody else by saying, whether in words or deeds, that their station in life was above your own. Um, so January 21st, 1793. Uh, note that this is only about eight months later after the first use of the guillotine, Louis XVI is executed by Madame la Guillotine. And um, if things were chaotic before, this is this basically takes the cork out of the bottle. Now, at this point, it's important to introduce a couple more personalities that are part of this new republic, this new wave of despotism that is sweeping the country. Um, and one of these um, foremost individuals of the time was George Danton. He was the first president of the Committee of Public Safety, more on that in a minute, and he is considered to be the mastermind behind putting the reign of terror into place. He's often credited with bringing down the monarchy and establishing the French First Republic. So even though Robespierre is by and large considered the main leader during this time period, George Danton would have been his right-hand man. He had the ideas, he had the plan, and with um, the um, bloodthirsty approval of Robespierre, uh, Danton was basically allowed to structure things as he pleased. Um, he is reportedly the one who coined the phrase liberté, equality, fraternité, liberty, equality, and fraternity. Uh, and this was sort of the rallying cry, the mantra of the um, discontented populace of the time. Uh, he was a moderating influence on the Jacobins, which sounds a little ridiculous when you see that he's uh, generally credited with masterminding the reign of terror, but also consider that the Jacobins, like these were the, um, the, the pot stirrers. They were the ones there to foment unrest, to rally people to the cause. And so if anyone was going to put the brakes on the Jacobins, it was going to be Danton. Um, so it, he was able to moderate their responses on occasion, but eventually he himself was executed by the very mechanisms, mechanisms he put in place. And he was executed by the guillotine. But he was the first president of the Committee of Public Safety. What does that mean? Well, it was formed on April 6, 1793, and this was a council formed to execute the will of the revolutionaries and specifically the reign of terror with the help of a kangaroo court. And a kangaroo court is something that we will need to look at a couple of times throughout the year. This is the first time, the, the next time that we will look very closely at um, what entails a kangaroo court is when we get to the rise of Hitler uh, in World War II. A kangaroo court, simply put, is a court that works outside the law 
and takes matter in matters into its own hands. Um, so this would be, say, if um, there was unrest in America today and somebody um, burned somebody's house down to the ground. Instead of going through the proper channels, instead of the police arresting them, because, you know, right now the push is to defund the police nationwide. Uh, it, instead of the police arresting them and then taking them to court and going before a judge, do you plead guilty, not guilty, and then choosing a, a jury from among your societal peers, instead of going through all of that, the person who is supposedly guilty of this hideous act is taken off the streets by the populace themselves and they just meet in someone's basement and put the accused on trial with the jury being the neighborhood watch for that neighborhood. Like that's a kangaroo court. And, you know, and this is what's going on here. You know, this is part of uh, how the Committee of Public Safety work because they've abolished the nobility, they've abolished the monarchy, they don't have a new constitution yet, they've been asking for one, they've been trying to make one, they don't have one yet, so the whole legal system is in shambles. You know, nobody knows what to do now with, you know, in, in regards to anything. And so these kangaroo courts become the status quo, people taking matters into their own hands. Then we have Jean-Paul Marat, and he is one of the most vociferous orators of the time. He is extreme in personality, exaggerated in statements. He's a brilliant orator. He can turn a phrase, uh, nail down a speech, and, and make it look easy and it's very persuasive, but he is an absolute crackpot in all of his declarations, um, all clearly exposed in his journalism. Uh, remember the Palais Royal, and they, they actually had a little printing press and, and they were putting out pamphlets with incendiary propaganda. Jean-Paul Marat is one of the favorites of that propaganda being put out. Marat believed that any publicity is good publicity and famously insisted that man should have no gods, no masters. Also remembered for saying, men must die in order for us to set them free, which is very reminiscent of Diderot's king and priest quotes that we talked about during our Enlightenment study. Sometimes he is remembered as the father of modern-day terrorism, using violence to bring about good. Um, he himself met with a bloody end. He was assassinated in the bathtub by a Garondist, which was a, a, the Jacobins themselves splintered into multiple factions. And the Garondist, Girondist, I'm, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, they were considered moderate. You know, they, they weren't quite as radical as some and not as, mild-mannered as others. They were supposed to be sort of middle of the road, but apparently they weren't above assassinating their own leaders, which is what happened. And um, probably by the time you listen to this uh, podcast, we will have already looked at some of these paintings from the, the French Revolution. And one of them, probably the most famous 
uh, or one of the most famous during this time period, shows the death of Marat. Uh, he was in the bathtub, but um, if you'll think back to the painting, and if you weren't in the class, you can Google this. It's a very simple but stunningly executed painting and the symbolism there, the allusions to sacred art um, is really quite chilling. So it's yet another attack on the church, um, but it's done so without words. Um, in, in some ways, you would almost call it the first meme, um, uncaptioned. Uh, but Marat apparently had a skin condition, um, probably psoriasis or something like it, where the only way he could get any lasting relief was to soak in a bathtub with certain, you know, oils and, and additives added in. And so he had this deep wooden bathtub with a board that he would lay across it, which would allow him to use it as a writing desk while he soaked in uh, this um, healing bath to try to give his, his skin condition some relief. And while he was at his bathtub writing desk, um, a messenger arrived uh, telling him that he had a very important message to deliver. And thinking that this was from the Committee of Public Safety, it was from Robespierre or Danton or whoever, he um, you know, gladly allowed the messenger to approach. And when he reached up to take the letter, or, or rather as he was opening the letter to read it, the assassin stabbed him in the bathtub and then left without a trace. So again, I can't help but thinking of that uh, story from uh, the Old Testament. King Eglon uh, was assassinated by the uh, left-handed uh, warrior uh, from among the Israelites. And what the guy did is that he slipped into the king's bedchamber, stabbed him, and the, the Bible says that uh, Eglon was so corpulent, so fat, that the man's sword disappeared into his body and did not come out the other side. And the, um, the Israelite left him there and escaped. And meanwhile, the rest of the court is wondering what's taking the king so long. He just went to the bathroom and, and it says that they waited until the point of embarrassment and then went into the king's inner chambers and discovered that he was dead and had been dead for some time. So it's that kind of scenario. He's allowed into this very vulnerable moment uh, with Marat in the bathtub um, with his writing desk on top. And he kills him and escapes. And by the time anybody finds the body, um, it, it's you know, it's a done deal and the culprit is long gone. And I, I don't think history recalls at all who exactly killed Jean-Paul Marat. Um, in June, uh, June 24th, 1793, a new constitution is finally proclaimed. And a few months later, on October 5th of 1793, the Republican calendar is adopted with all months and years renamed and renumbered. Now, that sounds really bizarre and off topic. It's not, because if you consider the, the calendar year that we have, how we name our months 
and our years. The, the years are counted, whether you use the ADBC or CEBCE labels, it still marks time from the birth of Christ. Uh, so our years count upward from that point, and our months are taken from Latin, um, and uh, that has largely to do from uh, the, uh, the the influence of the Catholic Church over the centuries, and and things being in Latin for so long. The French rebelled against all of that. They didn't even want their calendar to remind them of the birth of Christ or of their their legacy as a Catholic nation. They threw all of that out. And so uh, I'd say according to this new calendar, um, Marie Antoinette, when she is um, executed the following week, uh, she was formally recorded as having been executed in the month of Thermidor which sounds like an alien from Star Wars or something. But anyway, in October, uh, they completely throw out the old calendar. They invent this new one that has no anchoring to uh, the Catholic Church. And then roughly 10 days later, October 16th, 1793, Marie Antoinette is executed. Her daughter was released unharmed to Austrian relations shortly thereafter, but the son was kept imprisoned and never seen again. One of the great mysteries of the 1800s was the question of whether or not the Dauphin, the crown prince, had died in prison or was quietly rescued. And this became the premise of a very famous novel by the Baroness Orxy called The Scarlet Pimpernel. There's a couple of really good movie versions of uh, this one as well. I personally recommend the short miniseries uh, with Jane Seymour for anyone who's interested. Um, and it also became the, the fodder for a humorous sidebar in Huckleberry Finn, uh, written by Mark Twain, where a couple of con men um, incorporate this idea into their con that one of them is the lost or missing dauphin of France. So it, it's sort of like the uh, the question that, that lasted for decades after the Bolshevik revolution of whether or not any of the czar's children had escaped the massacre. And for many, many, many years, it was believed that Anastasia had somehow miraculously escaped the, the execution. There's even a, a famous animated movie that plays with this idea. Of course, in the end, DNA studies uh, proved otherwise. The entire family and all of the children were killed. But it's, it's one of those great what-if questions. And um, like a lot of other things from the 1700s, um, we don't have a definitive answer about what happened to the prince, although it is very likely that he died in prison. He either uh, died from his treatment or was just killed outright and quietly disposed of where nobody could make a martyr out of him and a rallying cry for a resistance movement. The Duc d'Orléans, the, uh, the leader of all of this um, propaganda and nastiness at the Palais Royal, the one who fomented the original lies about Marie Antoinette, he actually is executed by guillotine less than a month after Marie Antoinette. So he followed her 
very quickly to the guillotine himself. And this is the point of uh, the story where the reign of terror becomes just that. Um, it, it is a, a reign of horror as people don't know who they can trust. Everyone's an informant and people who were originally founders of the French Revolution themselves become victims of its wrath. So the reign of terror, depending on where you look, um, you know, the number of people executed by guillotine varies wildly. Uh, the numbers attributed to Robespierre alone uh, fluctuates by several thousand. Um, and, and what they get stuck on here are the ones that were executed on his command. The official count, I guess what you might say is the documented paperwork for the ones that he officially sent to the guillotine, numbers around 16,000, which I mentioned in the previous episode. But the reality is that he's probably um, in the uh, more in the neighborhood of about 40,000 people that he's responsible for, much more likely number. And the official count of the number arrested is around 300,000 people and only about 17,000 of them officially executed and around 10,000 died in prison and or without a trial. Um, but honestly, I, I have seen um, very re reliable textbooks uh, say that it's as many as 240,000 people died by guillotine. So there was the official body count, and then there was the reality. Um, and, and I'm sure you've seen the movies uh, where, you know, they're, they're dragging people to the guillotine by the wagon loads, and they're just, you know, loading them off and just one after another. Um, the uh, Tale of Two Cities um, remarks on the women who sat at the feet of the of the scaffolding, doing their knitting while blood was being splattered on them. It's a very dramatic image. Um, maybe exaggerated a little bit for the sake of the book, but probably not by much. On July 28th, 1794, Robespierre himself was guillotined. And at that point, the reign of terror, um, I wouldn't say that it comes screeching to a halt, but at this point, the wheels start to fall off because then people are left going, well, wait a minute, Robespierre was our man. He was the one who was leading us into this glorious new future and we just executed him. So what, what, what gives here? 1795, a new constitution is finally completed after all of this bloodbath, all of this upheaval, um, including a method for choosing electors. However, only about 20,000 men qualified as electors, which sort of puts them back to the whole nobility thing where only a handful of people are actually allowed to vote on matters of importance. And only five of those 20,000 men actually led the late legislature. So now we have an oligarchy, a government led by a handful of elite men. This formed the directory, France's final government until the rise of a new dictator. And it is into this weakened, chaotic state of things that the strong-willed Napoleon Bonaparte steps in, and he quickly asserts his authority. He overthrows the directory 
establishes the French consulate and was made himself the first consul of France. Now, in class, we will talk about the nine stages of a revolution and we will map the French Revolution out over that. Um, but basically this becomes the pattern of all revolutions, bloody revolutions over the next 200 years. And um, the Streams of Civilization textbook that our junior high students are using this year has a very interesting quote about uh, the, the legacy of the French Revolution. And I'm just going to end with this here. Um, and, and this is taken from volume two, page 164. Quote, it, the French Revolution, its tools were envy, hatred, bloodthirstiness, disinformation, lying, propaganda, and the subversion of language. Its imitators' names are well known. Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky, Hitler, Mao, Castro, and somewhat lesser known, John Brown, Francisco Villa, Che Guevara, Patrice Lumumba, Margaret Sanger, Nicolae Ceausescu, Pol Pot, Ho Chi Minh, Malcolm X, Bernadette Devlin McAlisky, and Yasser Arafat. On an even more fundamental level, the French Revolution represented the birth of the cult of the common man and raw democracy in which the will of the people is God and thus the fountain of all virtue. In this cult, the tools are not always violence and bloodshed, but may include such seemingly benign instruments as education and religion. Yet the goal is the same the unrestrained elevation of autonomous man, individually or collectively, in substitution for a divinely ordained order. This ends our discussion of the French Revolution. Uh, be sure that you are pulling out those history textbooks. Uh, we did not use it for the French Revolution because the French Revolution is not included, except as a side note, in our textbook on modern American history. So make sure you have those handy because we will start using those in earnest in the near future. But until next time, uh, just keep up with your reading and we'll do it again soon. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.